All right, again, glad that you're here. Uh, chapter 15, verse 22. And I actually want to read through the end of the chapter here. We'll read it rather quickly, and then I want to come back and make a couple of observations. And rather than saving applications for the end, we're going to hit some applications very much at the beginning. And as always, if you have a short comment, just share it. Uh, if you have a longer comment, David will get you a microphone. But in chapter 15, verse 22, it says, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. They went out to the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. So you could do an entire study of Exodus almost, where they found no water or they found no food, where they were without sustenance. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of the place is called Marah. And the people complained against Moses in verse 24, what shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statue and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And he came to Elam, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. So that little section begins with no water. The only water that they had was bitter. And then it ends when they were encamped there by many waters. Uh, just a couple of things to point out about this particular text is that as good Bible students, we know that this is not the last time that a tree would be used to purify or that a tree would be used to make things better, right? And that's one of the kind of the big takeaways that we get from this particular passage as part of making things better for uh, the people of God. Of course, Jesus, the most famous instance of him on the cross. But I said I wanted to talk about applications early on. It seems to me that the biggest application or the biggest teaching point that we get from this particular text and from the, the next couple of chapters and really throughout Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is the concept of complaining or murmuring, where these people consistently go to Moses and they say, you have brought us out here to die. That's chapter 16. We would have rather died in Egypt. At least there we had food. So go over to chapter 16 and read just the first couple of verses here. It says in verse 2, the whole congregation of the children of Israel uh, complained against Moses, Oh, that we had died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you brought us out in this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So we'll talk about chapter 16 in just a minute. But I thought about three passages that just seemed to me to be so apparent in New Testament teachings on this particular subject. I want to just breeze through them real quickly. One is Philippians 2, verse 14, and that is a verse that is likely familiar to you, where Paul says, do all things without complaining and murmuring or complaining and disputing. James chapter 5, James chapter 5 and verse 9, where James says, do not grumble against one another, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And in the third passage, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9 makes an interesting connection. Uh, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. 
And I've always thought that was an interesting text, and I saved that one for last because, in part, the idea is, is being hospitable means making a sacrifice. That kind of goes back to what we talked about Sunday evening and satisfactory sacrifices. But it's possible, I think, to be hospitable and to grumble at the same time. Or it's possible to do God's work and to grumble or murmur or complain at the same time. Why else would there be so many different instances where there are occasions where Paul or Peter or James, the three people that we talked about tonight, uh, reference the concept of being cautious about the way that we speak those things. Thoughts on that? Um, maybe I'm overthinking it, but it just seems very uh, applicable to us. Um, or anything else on chapter 15 that we've left off from last week before we move on. All right. Okay, let's go ahead into chapter 16. Chapter 16 is where we read about uh, bread from heaven, and it's called what? Called manna. And I did not know this until just a couple days ago when I was preparing for this. I mean, I knew that manna meant literally what is it, but the Hebrew in the English is man who, M-A-N-H-U, man who. And the word manna or man who or man who means literally what is this or what is it? So the people saw this manna, this stuff on the ground, that God would rain, he says, he, verse 4, he will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them. What was the test? What's the testing about? Reliance. Reliance. I like that word. Um, trust is the word that I wrote in, in my notes. Reliance, trust, what else? And, and, and to get to the point that I'm trying to make, what is, as you read the rest of chapter 16, what are the details about the collection of manna? God gives specific instructions, and part of that testing would be to see if they're going to follow what it is. Absolutely. So God gives them very specific instructions on what they gather and when they gather in order to rely on him or to trust him fully. Absolutely. Um, what happened when they failed and they collected too much? It rotted and it grew worms and it was just, just disgusting looking and I'm guessing probably smelling as well. I'm not sure that the Bible talks about the smell of it. Um, but it's just not a very pretty picture, is it? Uh, I want to look at the two questions that David has outlined for us in chapter 16. Uh, what was the test of manna supposed to teach the Israelites? We kind of already addressed that. Uh, but what was the test of manna supposed to teach the Israelites besides reliance? What else was it supposed to teach them? I'm sorry? Obedience. Oh, obedience. Yes, absolutely. So there's something to be said for trusting God and obeying God. In fact, we sing a song, 326. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Um, so we sing the idea of trusting, reliance, and obeying obedience. The two of those things go together, right? Okay, very good. The second question in chapter 16 that David had for us is, what did their disobedience regarding gathering the manna reveal about the people? What does it teach us about them? 
so stubbornness, some of them just refused to do what was uh, commanded of them to do. Um, I wrote, uh, I thought that was a good question, dedicated to their own understanding and the failure to go back and trust in God. Do we do that today? Sometimes? Sure, I see a bunch of heads nodding yes, because we have the tendency to be stubborn, to not obey, and to dedicate ourselves to our own understanding, and instead we trust ourselves and do not trust God. Are there New Testament passages that talk about trusting God rather than trusting ourselves or relying on God rather than relying on it? And there are, yes, there are a bunch, but name one or two that come to mind. Now, I've got one in my head that, because I was studying it yesterday. But a passage that talks about trusting in God and not trusting in self. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all thy heart, lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in his ways. There you go. Luke, Luke uh, 12. Absolutely. Very good. What verse was that? Uh-oh. Uh, verse 15, yes. And incidentally, which leads then to the passages that I was really thinking of, because we could all think of probably uh, a dozen or two dozen passages in the New Testament. I was thinking of Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. The comparison text is the more familiar Matthew 6, verses 24 through 34, where it says, you cannot serve two masters. You must choose one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money or God and mammon. And then he goes on and he talks about anxiousness or, he talk, or worry, depending on the version you're reading from. And he says very famously, Jesus does, that you must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things will be added to you. It seems to me that the people here in, in the middle to latter part of chapter 16 were really good about trusting themselves and relying on themselves, but poor about trusting in the Lord. And I like Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, because that certainly, certainly dovetails into this concept very, very well. Other thoughts on chapter 16 or on those two questions that we've uh, addressed thus far? Yes, uh, Brother Jonathan. And while microphone's going to him, we'll get ready to transition to 17 to um, a very familiar text here in just a second. Yeah, Jonathan. And we, we ought not miss that this is setting us up for a time when the true bread is going to come down out of heaven, feed God's people, um, and be. this is all, all pointing to that, to teach us that man doesn't live by this kind of bread alone, um, but by what comes from God. Very good. Excellent. And where do we find uh, the text where it says that man will not live by bread alone? Deuteronomy, where in the New Testament do we find it? Matthew 4, right? And it was quoted by Jesus back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus says, uh, what, what, what was being asked of Jesus when he made that statement? Turn the stones to bread after he was in the wilderness for those 40 days, right? Uh, incidentally, off the subject, but on the subject, because anything in the Bible is on subject. That's one of the great things about preaching and teaching classes is anything in the Bible is fair game, you know. Uh, is 
Matthew chapter 3 ends with what happening? Baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, boom. Here he is facing temptation. The moment that we decide to serve God and sign up is the moment that Satan says, you are now my number one enemy. If you're not serving God, if you're not baptized, if you're not, or if you are and you're unfaithful and you're just, just doing your own thing, Satan says, you've made my life easy. You've made things simple for me. But when we choose to obey God and say, that's my target is to serve him, that's when Satan says, I'm after you. Because now you are my you're public enemy number one. Um, so I thought that was kind of just an interesting thing to point out. Anything else on chapter 16? All right, let's go ahead to chapter 17. We'll spend the rest of our time in 17 and 18. We'll slow down just a little bit here because I want to read a few passages in 17 and then in 18. Chapter 17, it says, All the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses. I'm told that the word contended is not only different in the New King James from complained or murmured, it's a different word in the Hebrew language, and that their complaints or murmuring is, they're kind of adding on to it each time. They're making it worse for Moses and for Aaron when they complain to this. So they say, give us water that we may drink. What is missing in verse 2? This is just, this is just my own little world but there's a word missing in verse 2 and the word is please <laughs> sometimes please goes an awful long way so please give us a water drink well maybe Moses would have been a little bit calmer uh, so Moses said to them why do you he uses the same word in the New King James why do you contend with me why do you tempt the Lord let's talk about that for a moment in what way does Moses see them as tempting the Lord. Because that's an interesting statement. That's a pretty bold statement to make, is it not? He says, why do you tempt the Lord? I think they're questioning God's ability to provide for them. Okay, part of it is, is just this questioning, uh, God, are you going to provide for us? And I have, a, I have a point about that when we get down to verse 7 here in just a minute. But uh, David? The, the, the word tempt in the Old Testament is often synonymous with the word test. Test, right? Testing. They were testing Very God. good. Let's, uh, does someone else have a hand up? No? But they're saying God's not good. Yeah, they, they are making, this is a big accusation, is it not? That God is uncaring, unconcerned, a non-provider, and we're going to get out here, and now here we are in the wilderness, and we're all going to die. And these people, I, I was listening to this a couple of days ago, someone talking about this concept. Before, we, well, maybe it was David who was talking about this last week. It was David talking about this. Um, before we get too, to be too hard on the people of Israel in the time of Moses, we need to be cautious to take a step back and look at ourselves in a collective mirror. Because we can be hard-headed as well. And not question or, or, or question God and his motives as well. Verse 3, I want to read down at least through verse 7, which is the, little in, the end of this little section here. 
people thirsted there for water. Back in chapter 15, it did not say that the people thirsted for water. I'm not saying that they didn't. I'm just saying that now it seems like it may be a little more acute that they really need water. Uh, and they complained against Moses. Why is it you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Anything, uh, that's pretty extreme, I think. The Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. You shall strike the rock. Water will come out of it and the people may drink. Moses did so on the side of the elders of Israel. So he called in the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Verse seven to me is the key verse. And it goes back to the point that Jonathan was making that we've made kind of collectively in the last three to five minutes. And that is these people are testing or tempting God in this question, is the Lord among us or not? So chapter 17, question number one in David's outline is what did the people's complaint about no water reveal about themselves? What does that reveal about them? No faith in God. Absolutely. I, used the, I wrote the word short-sighted in my notes. Unable or unwilling to fully trust the Lord. Had, had, I mean, I wrote in my notes, is the Lord among us or not? And then I wrote, wow. Hadn't he already proved that time and time and time again in the previous 13 chapters of Exodus? Going back to about Exodus chapter 4. So I thought that was just bizarre. I mean, I mean it's bizarre, but yet we do the same thing. We, we, we've seen where God blesses us, takes care of us, and provides for us, but yet we still wonder whether he'll bless us, provide for us, and protect us in the future. And it goes back to, again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 29 through about verse 32. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. Look at creation. It neither toils nor spins, talking about the lilies of the field. Luke talks about the grass that is one day they're in, and then the next day is then cut and cast into the fire. The point being is that nature does not concern itself with whether or not God will provide because God always provides. Other thoughts on that before we move on to verse 8? Yes, David. About verse 6 there, I heard someone make an observation one time that Moses struck the rock and God delivered water. Jesus, our rock, was struck and God delivered living water. Excellent. So uh, living water, living bread, going back to the concept of bread from heaven, right? Absolutely. Very good. Um, let's see. Seems like there was something else I wanted to say in 16, but I, I skipped over. But we'll go ahead and go on into 17. Verse 8. Okay, 
Verse 8 talks about Amalek. Who is Amalek? Who are the Amalekites? Where do they come from? They come from Esau. They are a family of Esau. And of course, we know from our study of Genesis a month and a half ago that anytime you have Edomites, anytime you have Esau, anytime you have Amalekites, anytime you have Ammonites, anytime you have the Moabites, which come from Lot's descendants, that when all these branches to the left or to the right, depending on how you're looking at it, um, pose problems or have the potential to cause problems for the people of God. And that was certainly the case here. I want to read this, and then I want to go over to Deuteronomy 25, because Deuteronomy 25 actually provides commentary to these verses. Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a rod of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it was when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. The Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heaven. Moses built an altar there, called his name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, and the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Um, so my first question is, is uh, why are the Amalekites fighting? And we have Deuteronomy 25 gives us a little more information before we go over there, but why this fight? Or do we know? Well, I mean, there's, you asked, I mean, why are they picking on them? Mm -hmm. I think they're pretty easy targets. They got no port to go back to. They got gold from Egypt. Right. So they have no defense uh, in that they don't have a fort, like you said. And they have a lot of stuff. Remember how last week we talked about they plundered the Egyptians, in fact, the Egyptians are writing checks to them as they leave, you know, and taking up a collection for them as they're going out, right? So um, no wonder why you want to attack them. Let's go over to Deuteronomy 25, and I want to pick up in verse 17 and read about three or four verses. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 17. So this is in, in the latter third of the book of Deuteronomy. Remember that the book of Deuteronomy literally means second law. It's not that it's a second law. It's just that it's the second giving of the law to what seems like a new generation of people who have, are preparing to enter the land. Uh, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, and the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So 
there we get a little bit of information that they attack the vulnerable, the back of the rank, uh, you know, the idea of the, the people that were the stragglers. They were the ones who were really subject to the brunt of the attack of the Amalekites. Um, when God says you will blot them out, make them no more, make them no longer exist, what ends up happening to people? They destroy them all. I mean, those, those places are gone. Those people are eliminated. Uh, those commands are meant to be taken um, in a serious manner. Um, let's talk about uh, Aaron, her, and Joshua for a moment. What do we learn? Uh, this could be a sermon. Lessons from Aaron and her and a stone to sit on. It's kind of a long title. But um, what do we learn about Aaron and her in these verses? Supportive. Supportive? Very good. Resourceful. Resourceful. I like that. Enduring. Enduring. So you can make a list of maybe four or five things and talk about. Um, what does it teach us? Very good. I, 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 we should support one another too is what I wrote in my notes. So Roger was looking at my notes earlier tonight. Yeah, we should support our brethren. We should support our brethren in terms of our leadership, um, in terms of holding up their hands and helping them to do their work. Uh, reminded me of Hebrews 13 verse 17. Uh, I want to read it because otherwise I'll quote it wrong. But Hebrews 13 verse 17 and talking about leadership says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. And then let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So uh, rather than uh, tearing down, we build up. But that's not just true with our pastors. That's true with uh, every member, is it not? That we have that relationship to build up one another and support one another as well. And the, the New Testament, Ephesians, for example, Colossians, for example, which we'll be studying, uh, Colossians will be studying in a couple of months in more detail, really talk about the importance of edifying, building up, which is synonymous with one another, um, trying to project that strength upon one another that we can help one another become stronger in difficult times. Philippians talks about that as well. We'll talk about that. Anything else on chapter 17 before we spend our final 14 minutes in chapter 18? Okay, let's go ahead then, and I want to read, a, we won't read all of chapter 18, but I want to read a couple of portions of it. Who was Jethro? Moses' father-in-law. We were introduced to him, remember back in, where, well, where were we introduced to him? I'm not asking for what passage, but what was the context for our introduction to him 15 chapters earlier, or 13 chapters earlier? Say again. Very good. Remember, Moses had killed the Egyptian, and then they said, are you, what are you going to do? Kill someone again? And he's fearful because his deeds has been known, so he flees to Midian, right? 
and there is where we are introduced to Jethro. Here we are told that Jethro is a priest of Midian, and this is interesting because we know that the concept of priests predates the Mosaic law. The most famous priests of all in Genesis would be Melchizedek, right? Who was also a king of Salem. And going back to Jonathan's point about types and antitypes or precursors and cursors is it's a picture of Jesus going forward. But Jethro hears the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard. So he heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So word spreads about the good that God has done. Come back to that in just a minute. It says that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom. I have seen a stranger in a foreign land, is what that name means, or a sojourner, or a temporary person. And the name of the other was Eli. Eliezer, or Eliezer, where he said, The God of my father was to help and deliver me from the sword of Pharaoh. Verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to, the Mo to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And he says, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife, her two sons with her. Moses went to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. Now, this is what I think is, is really, really interesting. Um, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. So in verse, where was it here? Verse 1, where he heard all the good that God had done for, the Mo for Moses. Then in verse 8, Moses says, let me tell you all the good. So if someone knows about the goodness that God has done, they don't know about all the goodness that God has done. And it's then our responsibility to share that message with others. In fact, that's what the gospel is, is it not? The gospel is the good news we are sharing with others the good news about how God has treated us and how God has blessed us. And so in many ways, Moses is being an evangelist here in spreading this good news to Jethro. Jethro says, I hear all the good stuff that's happened. And Moses says, you haven't heard the, the, the beginning of it or the end of it. You've heard the part of it. But let me tell you the real story. He has just blessed us time and time and time again. And I can almost just see Moses saying, I'm so excited to tell you all this stuff that God has done for my people, uh, for the people. Uh, thoughts on that? Uh, any other comments on that? Just thought that was it kind of makes you wonder if we're not told, but it kind of makes you wonder if Moses had told Jethro about when he first went. Lived. Yeah. Yeah, so we don't have the recorded conversations, the initial conversations between Jethro and Moses back in the earlier chapters of Exodus. But it's, it would stand to reason that there would have been some conversation. This also reminds me of Rahab. Remember when Rahab was in what city? 
Jericho, and she said, quote, we have heard about your God. We have heard about the good things that he has done. So word was spreading in the time, what, 2,500, 3,000 years ago, whatever this was, uh, and is spreading very quickly about how God's people are being blessed more than other people's are being blessed. Um, all right, drop down to uh, verse 13. And I want to read 13 through uh, at least through half the chapter. And we'll, we'll end here because I think there's a good application for us here as well. 13, it was on the next day that Moses, uh, that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So all day long, Moses is being this judge. He's being an arbitrator. They're coming to him with presumably every kind of issue that they could think of. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire God. Let's pause there for just a moment. Go to verse 16. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. What does this tell us, first of all, about Moses? He's a judge. He's a judge. What are the people's perception of Moses? Apparently. He, they, they see him as God's mouthpiece. I love that phrase that you use. They, they trust him. They rely on him. Wouldn't it be great if when we are old and near death or once we have died that someone says about us they were uh, a mouthpiece of God? Not in the sense of a, a supernatural God has blessed me with information separate from the Bible, but the mouthpiece of God and that we are giving away the Bible's information from our voices and from our examples. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that's what was said about us? And that people would come to us because we have godly wisdom to give. I just think that's, I just love the way verses 15 and 16 render it. Think about how Moses was that respected uh, and that relied on by the people. So Moses' father-in-law, verse 17, said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Now, when he says it's not good, what does he mean by that? It's not good for his business later. Right, right. He's not saying that what he is doing is, is a not good thing or is a bad thing or is an evil thing. He's saying you are, and we're going to go to the next verse here. He says you are going to, you're going to fall over dead is what he's saying. You are working way too hard. Both you and these people, I thought that was interesting, not just you, but the people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Um, it would be better for someone to come to us and say, you're working too hard, then you're not working hard enough, right? We'd want someone to say, you, you are really diligent. You are really, um, you're doing your very best. You're putting forth the best efforts possible. Listen now to my voice, verse 19. He says, I'm going to give you some advice. I'm going to give you counsel. And God will be with you. 
going back to Roger's point just a few moments ago, I, I tend to think that there had been some conversations between Jethro and Moses about the Lord, or else Jethro would not have said, God's going to be with you. God's going to bless you. God's going to provide for you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the ways which they must walk and work they must do. Now watch verse 21. This goes to question number two. What traits did Moses look for in choosing able men to be judges? Trustworthy, fearing God, able men, hating what? Say again. Hating a bribe. Hating a bribe. I like that better than the New King James Version, the idea of coveting, hating those who would covet or hating the act of coveting. Place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. Good advice? Of course it's good advice. It comes from God. It comes from a, a godly perspective, right? Uh, I love the last part of verse 22. It will be easier for you. They will bear the burden not for you, but with you. And that goes back to the point that I think Roger made a few moments ago. The idea of who are we to support? What do we learn from Aaron and her and Joshua? We are to support one another. We are to um, build up one another. Yeah, Roger. Uh, you, you mentioned Moses when he healed the, or the Hebrew. That act was not an act of just cold-blooded murder. Sure. That was an act of self-defense and serving your brother. Because who would have known the Hebrew may have killed his, no, yeah. Moses' brother? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, very, very good to put all that in perspective and to remember all the different details of this. Um, and, you know, the book of Exodus works very nicely as a, as a story. And it's not just a story. I'm not suggesting that. I hate to use the word story. It's an account of these people. And like David has really done a really good job of trying to get us to understand. We look at it sometimes from the bottom up, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But we're trying to look at it from the top down. The idea how God is showing himself, exhibiting himself, proving himself. And that's exactly what's happening here. Um, is there an application for this verse 21? Or verse, yeah, verse 21. Able men, fear God, men of truth, hating a bribe. Is there an application for us today? And this is, guess what I'm thinking. I, that's exactly what I was thinking. So you win the prize for the night. Um, I was thinking of, you, you got 1 Timothy 3 and you got Titus 1. You have a list of characteristics or qualities or requirements, whatever word you want to use, for those who are going to serve as bishops. And they must be men who are able and willing. We know that from Titus chapter 1. They fear God. They are men of truth. And they have to hate taking bribes. They have to be all those things, right? And really, let's face it, we, one of the points that I always try to make whenever I, I teach on the subject of elders and deacons or preach on the subject of elders and deacons is that 
90% of the qualities, well, let's rephrase it, 100% of the qualities are necessary for all of us to aspire to. The only differences would be the idea of, of, of a marriage or something like that. It's not necessary to be a faithful Christian. Uh, but all those things that elders are to aspire to, that deacons are to aspire to, and to, to master in their lives, are things that each of us are to master as well. So that same thing is true about us. The idea of fearing God, being truthful, being able, and hating a bribe are all very important for us to be a part of. All right, we've got 60 seconds left. Uh, anything else? Uh, Brother Dan over here, and uh, we'll go to him. And then next week, chapter 19. Yes, Brother Dan. I'll make this brief. What, what we see in this chapter is a combination of three types of priests. We have Jethro, a priest from the patriarchal order. We have Aaron, a priest under the law of Moses. And then we have Moses, who was a priest in a proverbial sense or a more principles-based way. The man that God said stood in the gap when otherwise he would have destroyed and Jethro is a man who understands priesthood, as he describes in verse 19, the concept of representing the people's cases before mm -hmm. God. That's essentially what a priest is, someone who represents the sinful nation or the, the one who is in need before Perfect. the Almighty God. This, this chapter is very significant because it's one of the few times you would see all three types of priests in the same in context. In the same spot. Excellent. Thank you, Dan, for sharing that. That's really, really good. All right, we'll go ahead and end there next week. Uh, Brother David will be back, Lord willing, and we'll pick up in chapter 19. Thanks for your kind attention.